I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Between January and May of 1979, 11 black women and one white woman were murdered within several miles of one another in the Roxbury neighborhood on the south side of Boston, Massachusetts. In the Boston area, during the 1970s, racial tensions were high, with various racial attacks and even a public beating, which only further pushed conversations about the Roxbury murders towards discussions of race and even gender. Despite the horrors of these murders, they never garnered attention from the media at the time. Well, except for the one white female victim whose death was widely publicized. I'm your host, Nisa. Welcome to the Lost Crimes Library. Let's review the heinous Roxbury murders. In Boston, during the 1970s, the racial tensions and social climate were high, even lethal. If you narrow the focus to the Roxbury neighborhood in particular, the racial tensions were severe in the middle of some major socio-political movements. During this time in history, public schools were in the process of desegregation in the Roxbury neighborhood and other surrounding neighborhoods. Obviously, desegregation wasn't going to be accepted without a fight. This led to riots, protests, and violence from both sides, all of which led to many hospitalizations and deaths. Up until the 1970s, the Roxbury neighborhood and other surrounding neighborhoods were pretty segregated, with Irish Americans in one area, Italian Americans in another, and African Americans in their own part of town. But when a judge ordered the desegregation of schools and buses, this meant that people of different races and ethnicities were legally forced to interact and live with one another, something many people feared. Racial tensions grew, and with it came violence. During these years, there was a stabbing of a black attorney, the public beating and death of a white male. A group of black students were trapped in a school for hours by an angry mob. There was a brutal attack of a black football player and so many more violent attacks. In the five months between January and May of 1979, women, and I mean mostly black women, became the target of many racial and gender-motivated violent attacks at an increasing rate. Their killings were never believed to have been committed by a serial killer. Instead, it was believed that these women were killed by at least four different men. 
The bodies of 11 black women, all between the ages of 15 and 34, were discovered in Roxbury, Dorchester, Jamaica Plain, the South End, and Back Bay in 1979. In addition to these 11 black women found, one white woman's body was found too. The media coverage of these black women's murders was brief, and the media rarely revealed the identities of the black women. However, Faye Polner, who was the white victim, her death was widely publicized, while the black women's murders never made national news. In the media, they tried hard to make it seem like Faye Polner's death was not necessarily tied to the other murders. While many were horrified by the murder of a white woman, many were completely blind to the brutal murders of 11 black women, whose stories were lost in the media and whose identities were still not yet revealed. Unfortunately, due to the lack of reporting, and even more so, the lack of humane and empathetic reporting at the time, these stories of these 11 black women are brief and only detail the manner of their death. This angers me and frustrates me, but I also feel like these black women were worth knowing and their identities need to be revealed for those who have never heard of the Roxbury murders. In so many cases, past and present, the cases of missing and murdered black people often only focus on the manner of death, not who they were before they died or how they were loved by the people closest to them. However, this is almost always granted to white missing and murdered individuals, even white people who kill. I wanted to tell a story of each victim, who they were, how they lived, who they loved and who loved them. But unfortunately, the reporting at the time does not allow me to do so. All you'll really get from this episode is their names and ages, their manner of death, the locations in which their bodies were found, and the names of the individuals who were charged with their murders. One of the youngest victims of the Roxbury murders was Christine Ricketts, who went by Chris. She was only 15 years old at the time of her murder. Chris was found on the sidewalk on East Lenox Street in Roxbury on January 29, 1979. She was found with another woman, presumably her friend, named Andrea Foy. Andrea was only 17 years old at the time of her murder, and she was found strangled on that same sidewalk on East Lenox Street on January 29, 1979. Andrea and Chris were the first two victims of the Roxbury murders, and they were both found inside trash bags with a blanket. A man named Dennis Jamal Porter was arrested in the connection of their murders. The next day, on Tuesday, January 30th, a 15-year-old girl named Gwendolyn Yvette Stinson was found strangled in a yard near her Park Street home in Dorchester. Her 40-year-old neighbor, a man named James Brown, was later arrested for her murder. Only a few days later, another woman was found dead near the Boston Parks Department office in Franklin Park. Her name was Karen Prater. She was 25 years old and a mother of a two-year-old girl. On the day of her murder, she was heading to visit her 75-year-old grandfather, Charles Prater, who she often took grocery shopping. Somewhere along the way, Karen was stabbed and beaten to death and then left in a wooded area near a hospital. She was the fourth victim so far, and a man named Kenneth Spann was arrested in relation to her death. As the body count rose and the racial tensions and violence showed no signs of dissipating, black women began to fear leaving their own homes. Although others weren't aware of the violence against black women in the neighborhood, the black women in and surrounding Roxbury were all too aware, and the idea of leaving their homes, especially alone, seemed like walking right into a killer's hands. What if they were next? Authorities began suspecting that black women simply stay indoors for the time being, that that was the best and only way to keep them safe. 
but to no one's surprise, it turned out that such a tactic wasn't the key to keeping black women safe. On Wednesday, February 21, 1979, Daryl Ann Hargett was found strangled and bound inside her own apartment in Wellington. She was just 29, and she was a choir singer and social worker. Her murder proved that black women were apparently not safe anywhere in Boston, and sadly, her killer was never brought to justice. When the murders first began in January, the police and the press handled these events as if they were of no concern. Without much help from the police or even the press, the black community, more specifically the black feminist community in Boston, stepped up. A collective of black feminists, along with a group called Third World Women, organized themselves to confront the local authorities and demand for justice. Community meetings were called in the areas in which these black women had been murdered. They formed an organization called Crisis. Through this organization, self-defense classes were set up, protective neighborhood programs were built, and marches and rallies were held. Despite this effort, black women were still dying, and it seemed that the local authorities were still not taking the necessary actions to prevent further deaths. On Wednesday, March 14th, a 17-year-old girl named Desiree Denise Etheridge was found beaten and burned to death on Fellow Street in Dorchester. She was brutally beaten, leaving her skull and jaw shattered. At the time of her murder, she was a part-time student who lived on the same street as the third victim, Gwendolyn Stinson, and her body was found only 100 yards away from the school where the bodies of the first two victims, Chris Ricketts and Andrea Foy, were found. Her killer was never brought to justice. This was the sixth victim who had been murdered between January and March of 1979, and there were no signs of slowing down. Without police help and intervention, and without the press releasing the names and identities of these murdered women, it was becoming clear that no one with power and authority really cared. And if no one with power and authority really cared, who was to stop the killing of another black woman? Who was to stop the next killer from thinking they could get away with murder? In the spring of 1979, a Boston black feminist group called the Combahee River Collective was fed up and frustrated with the blatant disregard for black women's lives, so they did something about it. They published a pamphlet with an analysis of the murders, dissecting the racial and gender implications of these murders. During this time, many people considered the killings to be only racially motivated. However, the Combahee River Collective wanted to set the story straight. These murders weren't just racially motivated, they were gender motivated too. This is an excerpt from the 1979 pamphlet. Quote, In the black community, the murders have often been talked about as solely racial or racist crimes. It's true that the police and media response has been typically racist. It's true that the victims were all black and that black people have always been targets of racist violence in this society, but they were also all women. Our sisters died because they were women, just as surely as they died because they were black. If the murders were only racial, young teenage boys and older black men might have also been the unfortunate victims. They might now be petrified to walk the streets as women have always been. One reason that attacks on women are so widespread is that to keep us down, to keep us oppressed, we have to be made afraid. Violence makes us feel powerless and also like we're second best. Another idea that has been put out in this crisis is that women should stay in the house until the murderers are found. In other words, black women should be under house arrest. Remember Darielle Hargett, 
the fifth woman, was found dead in her own apartment. If and when they catch the murderers, we still won't be safe to leave our houses, because it has never been safe to be a woman alone in the street. Staying in the house punishes the innocent and protects the guilty. It also doesn't take into account real life, that we must go to work, get food, pick up the kids at school, do that wash, do errands, and visit friends. Women should be able to walk outside whenever they please, with whoever they please, and for whatever reason. The idea of men protecting us isn't very realistic, because many of us don't have a man to depend on for this. Young girls, teenagers, single women, separated and divorced women. And even if we do have a man, he cannot be our shadow 24 hours a day. What men can do to quote-unquote protect us is to check out the ways in which they put down and intimidate women in the streets and at home, to stop being verbally and physically abusive to us, and to tell men they know who mistreat women to stop it and stop it quick. Men who are committed to stopping violence against women should start seriously discussing the issue with other men and organizing in supportive ways. We decided to write this pamphlet because of our outrage at what has happened to six black women and to thousands and thousands of women whose names we don't even know. As black women who are feminists, we are struggling against all racist, sexist, heterosexist, and class oppression. We know that we have no hopes of ending this particular crisis and violence against women in our community until we identify all of its causes, including sexual oppression." End quote. The pamphlet was very successful at the time. It was widely distributed in the neighborhoods that had been affected by the murders, and it became a major tool for outreach. It was a significant help in the discussion of women's safety, and for the politics of black feminism. Many women greeted the pamphlet with a sigh of relief because finally someone was addressing the obvious problems, publicizing the murders, and providing a sense of community for many black women who didn't feel safe or protected by the local law enforcement. On April 1st, 1979, thousands gathered for a march to memorialize the deaths of the six women who had already been murdered within a two-mile radius of each other. The protest was organized by the Combahee River Collective. During the march, the aunt of Daryl Ann Hargett, one of the murdered women, gave a speech and asked the audience, quote, who is killing us, end quote. Somehow, this question caused a stir with many black men when they failed to realize and recognize that there was a gender component to these killings. Unfortunately, many black men there refused to address the violence against black women, and the tensions during the march grew. The pamphlet was never going to be enough to stop these brutal murders, because these murders could only be stopped with police intervention and pressure from the media to find those responsible for committing these crimes, and to make these crimes more widely known to Boston citizens. Without these resources, the murders only continued, and more black women were being attacked and murdered every day. 22-year-old Darlene Rogers was found in Washington Park on April 14th, naked from the waist down. She had been stabbed multiple times before she bled out in the park. Her killer is still unknown and has managed to escape justice like many of the other women's killers. Two weeks later, on April 28th, a 31-year-old woman named Lois Hood Nesbitt was found dead in her own home. Her dead body was found tied up to her bed, and it appeared that she had been strangled by a radio cord. Her case received some publicity in the media, with an article in the Boston Globe, one of the only media outlets who covered the cases at the time. Fortunately, police were able to find her killer, who was identified as a 31-year-old man named Richard Struther, who shared the same address as Lois. It has always been unclear if they lived together in the same building or if they were just neighbors who lived on the same street. 
the next victim of the Roxbury murders would be a 19-year-old girl by the name of Valeric Holliday. Unlike any of the other victims, Valeric was actually conscious when police arrived at the scene. Police arrived at her apartment on a Friday night, and Valeric told police that she had been stabbed by an 18-year-old, a man named Eugene B. Conway. They both had been living together in her Dorchester apartment. Eugene was arrested immediately that night and claimed that he was innocent. But sadly, Valeric Holliday died the next morning from her wounds. It was beginning to look like there would be murder after murder after murder, with no end in sight. There had already been nine victims in just a few months, and still not much was being done about it from the side of the police or the press. The names of many of the victims still had not been released to the public. Some of the women who were mentioned in the local newspapers only had a brief description of their deaths, and they were quickly brushed aside. At the start of the murders, a brief article titled Two Bodies Found in a Trash Can, which only contained four paragraphs, was published. However, the names and identities of the bodies were never revealed. Aside from this type of reporting being uninformative to the public and insulting to the victims' families, it is completely disrespectful and callous to report these deaths as if these black women were just bodies, not like people who had names and whole lives worth mentioning. Sandra Bulware was the 10th victim in 1979. She was just 30 years old, and her naked body was found charred in a burning grass lot near a YMCA at 5 a.m. in the morning. After not hearing from Sandra for three days, her sister reported her missing. What's wild is that Sandra, a year prior to her murder, moved from Connecticut to Boston, not knowing that this one decision would alter her fate. Thankfully, her murderer, Osborne Jimmy Shepard, was captured. The final murder that is known from that horrible and terror-filled year was of 34-year-old Bobby Jean Graham. Bobby was found in the alley by a man who happened to be driving by. During the investigation, a female witness came forward and she said that she noticed a couple walking towards the alley. She said she noticed the woman who was walking appeared to be drunk or was just having a difficult time walking. Next, she witnessed the man pick up the woman and carry her into the alley. Bobby was found the next morning with blood on her body and indentations from a heel on her chest. When the autopsy was conducted, it revealed that she died from a lacerated liver caused by multiple blows to her midsection with a blunt object. Her killer has never been known. When researching this episode, I found it so strange and even terrifying that all of these women were killed by separate killers in such a short amount of time. I think when we hear that 12 women were murdered within a five-month time span, our mind goes straight to, this must be a serial killer, especially if 11 of them are all black women killed within the same area of a city. But the fact that these 11 black women were killed by separate killers is so scary because these killings weren't executed by some individualistic madman who could be profiled and captured in a systematic manner. Instead, multiple men figured that killing black women day after day was okay because no one was going to do anything about it. Black women weren't left to fear some random serial killer who roamed the streets at night, but rather they were left to fear anyone who crossed their paths and even those closest to them. They were left to fear sleeping in their own homes at night. It was like this contagion that felt impossible to get rid of. The Roxbury murders appeared to stop after five long, terrorizing months. Although the murders seemed to dissipate, the tensions and the fears were still there. If anything, 
These five months filled with violent, brutal murders only made it more apparent to black women that they were incredibly vulnerable, and the chances of someone actually caring seemed slim. They took it upon themselves to form the Coalition of Women's Safety in response to the Roxbury murders. The first plan of action was to educate their community about violence against women. The second plan of action was to examine licensing and regulations of taxi drivers in response to the high number of attacks in taxi cabs. Members of the coalition also formed support groups for those affected by the murders, a place for black women to feel safe and valued. The support groups granted agency to women by giving workshops on firearm safety and self-defense for women. They also did so much more. They established trust funds for the surviving family members of the victims. They educated healthcare workers on assisting the needs of assault victims of all races and ethnicities, and they held forums on the apparent safety issues in the community. While researching, I did a quick search for any news reports about Faye Polner. This was the one white woman who died during the Roxbury murders, and what I found was shocking. One of the first news reports I found was actually pretty current. If you look up Faye Polner's murder case, you will find a news report from 2012 about her unsolved case. I was honestly shocked to find such current news coverage because it was almost impossible to find any news reports on these other women's cases. This news report was very generous with her backstory. I basically got Faye Polner's whole biography, and all I got with the black women who died along with Faye that year was the gruesome details of their manner of death and their age. I'm sure some of these black women love jazz music too. I'm sure they were also in school pursuing education, and they must have had siblings who yearned for answers and who missed their loved one. They had hobbies and interests like everyone else. They were just as human as Faye, and yet that was never portrayed in the media, even to this day. 33 years later, Faye Polner's case is still being investigated, and as it should be. But what about the other unsolved cases from 1979 of the black women who were murdered? What about Daryl Hargett, Darlene Rogers, Desiree Etheridge, Bobby Jean Graham? Doesn't anyone else care 33 years later? I know I do, and I know so many other black women who fear that this could be them one day, or any black women who have ever experienced violence do too. I'd like to think that whoever is listening to this right now cares about these 11 black women's stories. I think it's pretty clear how the media and the police felt back in 1979. But what I can't wrap my mind around is how there is no renewed interest in the other four cases that never got solved from 1979. And from where I'm standing, the only difference in this case is that four of those unsolved cases from 1979 were of black women, and the other was of a white woman. None of what happened or didn't happen in 1979 is entirely shocking to me, but it is heartbreaking and maddening. The media always plays a major role in how cases get solved. Putting identities and important information about murder cases and missing person cases has often led to breaks in a case, or even cases being solved, because someone out there always knows something or saw something. But if the public isn't fully and correctly made aware of crimes or missing persons, how do they know that their help is needed? If the media continually dehumanizes black people who have been murdered, that's the only way society will see us, as dead bodies, nothing more. And I know for a fact that black people are so much more than the trauma that happens to them, death or otherwise. Black people are vibrant, resilient, educated, talented, loved, and valued by those closest to them, and so much more. That humanity is always worth showing. 
If you want to interact with the podcast on social media or share with us some of your own theories about the cases, be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter at the LCL Pod. Don't forget to share the podcast so we can get more attention for these very important cases. If you'd like to listen to more episodes of the Lost Crimes Library, you can find it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe or follow so you won't miss any new episodes. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.